Good evening. This is the Ecology Hour on KZYX 88.1 Fort Bragg, 90.7 Philo, 91.5 Willits and Ukiah, Mendocino County's Public and Community Radio, and it is 7pm. Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I will be your host this evening, Hannah Bird. On tonight's edition, we'll be revisiting with two PhD candidates from the UC Berkeley Brochers Lab. That's Phoebe Parker-Shames, who studies the environmental impacts of cannabis production, and Kendall Calhoun, who studies wildlife response to wildfire. Both researchers conduct part of their fieldwork at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre right here in Mendocino County. We'll begin with an introduction to their projects recorded just over a year ago before revisiting with Kendall to hear an update on his work just last week. I started by asking Phoebe and Kendall to introduce us to their projects. So Kendall and Phoebe, welcome to the Ecology Hour. It's great to have you here. Um, Kendall, do you want to start us off? You guys are both studying topics which is of such great importance to our Mendocino and Northern California area. Um, perhaps you could start by just giving us a little bit of um, a breakdown of the studies that you are doing here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center. And Kendall, if you'd like to kick us out, off. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm Kendall. Um, I'm doing work looking at how different wildlife communities and populations are responding to a recent uh, megafire that entered Hopland back in 2018. Um, the 2018 River Fire, which is part of the Mendocino Complex, which was at the time one of the biggest or the biggest fire in California history. Um, and I'm really interested in looking at how um, mammal, the large mammal community, birds and bat species are all responding independently, but also as a community to some of the changes caused by um, high severity, large extent uh, megafires. Awesome. Okay, so um, Kendall, I know we're gonna, I, I really want to ask you how, how you go about doing that in a minute, but maybe we can shift over to Phoebe next. And Phoebe, would you mind giving me a a quick overview of the, the topic that you're studying, also incredibly relevant to our county and area. Yeah, so um, my research projects are looking at the ecological outcomes of cannabis legalization. So specifically at Hopland, we're setting up experiments to look at light and sound that mimics conditions from greenhouse and outdoor cannabis production and looking at what multi, multi species or so different species of wildlife um, and how they respond to those effects. Um, so everything from insects, birds, um, to large mammals. So both of you are studying, I mean, for it just sounds incredibly complicated what both of you are doing. And one of the things that sounds difficult is you're both looking at multi-species. So there's this, in, there's this effect, something that's happened in either the wildfire or um, these lights and sounds, and then you're trying to look at how that impacts many different kinds of species. So how on earth do you do that? Um, lots of different tools, <laughs> which actually makes the work that much more fun. <laughs> um, so actually Phoebe and I overlap a lot in like how we go about to answer these questions. So for mammal species, we use camera traps, which are like um, cameras that are remotely triggered by animals that walk past them. And we can look, look at different species through that. And then also using bioacoustics. So like bird recorders and ultrasonic recorders to look at birds and bats respectively. Um, and then I think Phoebe has even more <laughs> monitoring tools. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're also, to, so to the, to the camera traps and the acoustic monitors, we're also adding um, some some insect traps, so sticky traps for insects. We, we may also do um, a, a, a different um, technique for capturing uh, flying insects directly at the light source for those treatments. Um, and we're also piloting some track plates that should hopefully be fairly effective for small mammals. 
What is a track plate? A track plate is, is actually one of the old, old school wildlife monitoring methods where you essentially have a, a metal plate. Um, in our case, we'll have um, a sheet of paper with um, non-toxic uh, ink basically on one end. And so a small mammal, um, and, and they'll be in um, sort of a tube basically. So a small mammal come, walks through the tube steps on the ink, steps on the paper, and then we see the tracks of the animal. Um, so this like, is... Sorry, it sounds like you're creating a kind of artwork there as well. <laughs> I, I'm hoping they're quite pretty. <laughs> we'll see. Um, it, it's people, um, researchers have used, have used this technique for a long time, um, and they used to use um, pieces of metal, which they would use a, a flame to sort of... Um, I guess blacken one end and then the animal would walk across it and sort of carry the soot basically. Um, but that's not the, not the technique we're using in this case. It's really interesting because you're talking about technique there that's been used for a long period, but otherwise it sounds like the tools that you are able to access to gather this information are changing really quickly. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. Um, it, it's funny because I think in many ways the concepts um, are really old. So when we talk about camera traps, you know, we're in the digital age now and the sensors get more and more advanced and everything. But the reason why it's called a camera trap is because the original designs was, you know, a camera with a line basically attached to the trigger that an animal would walk over to um, trigger a, a camera. Yeah. Uh, so the concepts are, have been around for a long time, but the technology gets better and better. Yeah. Um, so you have these still many, many different species that you're monitoring. Um, I, I, I am always really intrigued. Kendall, you mentioned the acoustic monitoring you're doing. At, Phoebe, are you doing acoustic monitoring too? Y yes, yeah, that's the plan. So you're collecting sound recordings. Um, that you'll then be maybe identifying particularly bird species from? Yes, yeah, for the acoustic uh, recordings will be birds. Mm -hmm. So it's always on my mind that you could potentially, and I guess it goes the same with the camera traps, you could end up with many, many, many pictures and huge amounts of sound. How do you <laughs> cut it down to an amount that you can actually realistically um, review? Ooh. <laughs> um, well, for for the cameras, sometimes that's not always possible. <laughs> sometimes it requires a lot of legwork to go through all those images, and sometimes that means a lot of different people. <laughs> but there are um, potentially some new softwares that uh, we're investigating that could potentially kind of take some of that into like automated territory. <laughs> where like an algorithm will go through the images and pull out at least like all the animal pictures so that we don't have to go through all of the pictures that have nothing. Because <laughs> wow. sometimes you get misfires. And then that's also true for uh, the acoustic stuff. There's some new software and algorithms that can take the audio file or clip of like the bird or like the five, I do five minute recordings for my bird surveys. It can take that audio file download the sonogram, which is like the graph of the sound, and then identify um, species from that information using a algorithm. But um, yeah, it's on the up and up. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, sorry, go on, Phoebe. Oh, there's even um, some, it won't be in time for my dissertation <laughs> probably, but there's some people working on doing automatic classification with track plates as well. Um, and they think they can actually get it down to individuals because I guess on, on many mammals, the like the pad of the foot is, is sort of, I guess maybe sort of like how we have different fingerprints that some mammals have different pad shapes or, or slight differences in size that you can actually get at individual information. Um, so when you say that, <laughs> you mean literally the individual animal, a bit like when we go and get a fingerprint check to see if we're on some kind of criminal database, right? Yeah, sort of like Paul the mouse has visited oh this trap like six times uh, or something. Yeah, um, that's not going to be at that level. <laughs> it's not going to be at that level for for my study. I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to 
Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm necessarily interested in that in the question of the individual behavior, um, but also uh, I, I, I don't know that the technology is going to be there yet for me. And you don't normally name your species, your animals, right? You know, I, I actually don't have a problem with naming them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, you know, I thank you for indulging me on sharing the tools a little bit. I find that just um, fascinating. One other tool that we're also hoping to take advantage of is uh, movement data from collared animals um, and looking at their responses to both the, the, the effects of fire recovery and can these uh, uh, light and sound treatments for the cannabis experiments. Mm -hmm. And in the past, we've done um, deer collaring for what, like three years, three plus years. <laughs> And recently we've been able to collar coyotes, which has been really exciting in both the burned and unburned and especially around Phoebe's plots too. So it'd be interesting to see how, yeah, all these species are responding um, in real time to some of these. Kendall, I, I can't help but wanting to just bring up that during the fire, there was some really fascinating <laughs> um, data that was collected. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what we saw because the collars were on the deer during the fire? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so one, that's like, it was an awesome opportunity to see like what actual deer, deer are actually doing as the fire comes. Um, we had 13, 13 ish deer collared during the fire. And uh, we're afterwards, we were able to see their movements right as the fire was coming and in the months following. And we actually see that um, some deer make very small movements to evade the you know, incoming fire, but some make some very dramatic <laughs> movements off the property. Um, but actually we see that um, in the hours and days following, most deer come back to their home range and actually don't leave um, despite all of their, you know, uh, pre-burned habitat being all like burned down and all their forage being um, reduced. Uh, did you see then for that period afterwards, even though they stayed in their home range, was there a drop in their um, health? Yeah, so part of, so all of this is part of another project from an undergrad in our class, um, Sammy Creeling. And uh, we saw that deer in the burned area actually do decrease, their body condition actually does decrease in the first five months following the fire. Um, but we didn't see any signs of mortality, at least from the deer that were collared. Um, luckily. But uh, yeah, body condition goes down and they also are forced to use um, more area. So their home range doubles following the fire, probably to compensate for a lack of resources and their original home range size. Um, so they, yes, they, there are definitely effects, but they are seemingly adaptable to, to at least the immediate effects of fire. So you know, whenever I talk with either of you, I'm always just so fascinated in the studies that you're doing here. And it, it brings me to one of the things I wanted to talk to you both about this evening, um, which is, you know, you're, you're studying these issues that are incredibly important to our Northern California communities. Um, and, and sometimes I think in the worst cases, we can think of a scientific study being conducted papers being published in a journal, but then how do we see the practical benefits in a community? So maybe I can start, Phoebe, by pitching that to you, by asking, you know, you have a study which is of huge relevance um, in an area where um, farming cannabis is of, you know, huge value, um, and the ecological consequences are something which need to be considered very, very deeply. Um, how do you see the kind of work that you're doing is going to ripple out and actually make change in our communities? Yeah, I think that there are several different ways. Um, first, I will preface it with saying that this is a very small piece of the larger questions around cannabis and the environment and the different trade-offs we make, um, especially with different styles of production and places where, where we grow cannabis. Um, 
I think part of the part of the the goal for these experiments in particular has come from conversations with people involved in policymaking um, and enforcement, and also people who are trying to create sets of best management practices around cannabis. Um, so whether that's the, the farmers themselves or um, conservationists trying to work with farmers to um, promote best practices. Part of what is really difficult is that there's so little information around cannabis. Um, and so if you are sort of deciding, you know, things like uh, shielding for greenhouses um, when grow lights are in use, or if you're trying to decide um, uh, setback distances or noise thresholds for equipment, things like that. Um, we don't have a lot of data, especially not data that's specific to the types of practices being used on cannabis farms specifically. And so I'm hoping that this work can help directly inform some of those guidelines. Um, so like, um, as an example, I've been working with um, uh, CDFW is trying to create some wildlife conscious certifications for cannabis. And part of the challenge is that um, we don't always have the research to inform those best practice guidelines. So this, this hopefully will, will fit into some of those gaps um, and help us understand. Um, but then beyond sort of the more formal policy avenues, I'm hoping that it can be useful to farmers directly, um, you know, when they're making decisions of, you know, do I invest in the, um, the greenhouse that has the automatic, you know, covering and uncovering mechanism? Do I, do I make the switch to electric tools on, on site that are, generate a little less noise? Um, you know, getting a sense for which of these mechanisms might be impacting wildlife. Oh, or for instance, one of the big ones I would like to know too is with the lights, do you end up attracting crop pests? Do you end up, um, are there are there sort of trade-offs that you have to consider um, that might directly impact plant health itself? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that uh, through outreach networks like with, um, uh, HREC and its outreach connections and also with some of the various um, uh, cannabis groups uh, such as the Cannabis Research Center at Berkeley um, and hopefully some grower networks as well that we can also communicate these findings to people who are producing. Um, and then of course also there's the communities around that I know, I know I get questions all the time from people who are neighboring farms and say you know I'm worried about the lights, I'm worried about the sound, like you know, is this bad for the animals in my area? And, and, you know, being able to give them a sense of if there are impacts and what they look like and, you know, guidance for, hey, you could go talk to your neighbor and recommend these steps. Um, so yeah. that, that's, that's something that I found interesting. And just as you've been describing that, I mean, it sounds to me as if you've had input from the very beginning on, on how your study would be formed from growers, from, it, it just, it strikes me that from the, through the whole process and even maybe ongoing as you're conducting this study, you're getting this constant feedback to understand what the community needs are and how you can best be meeting them. Does that sound about right? Absolutely, yeah. So the, the original inspiration for this project um, it comes from the fact that I grew up in a, in a community that has been profoundly transformed by cannabis agriculture, uh, especially since legalization. And so I really wanted to research a question that could inform debates that are happening in my own hometown. Um, so that, yeah, that was, I think that's been explicit in sort of my approach and the questions that I ask with this research. Kendall, that makes me um, want to return to you again, because I know it's interesting hearing Phoebe say that this is actually something that's, you know, um, deeply embedded in her as well, in her community and her experience. Um, am I right in saying that for you, studying wildfire is something which 
which which has a similar kind of resonance for you? Oh, uh, definitely, especially in more, more recent years. Um, I'm originally from California, so um, I pretty much lived through and witnessed like the escalation of the wildfires we're kind of witnessing right now. Um, and although, well, I guess my hometown came close to <laughs> a fire like disaster um, in the last year, but uh, yeah, I'm also hoping that some of my work can help inform um, the communities around California and help inform how we manage California and its wildlife um, as you know, climate change and wildfire regimes continue to change. So I, I'm, I'm interested, Kendall, just the way that Phoebe's kind of been explaining how there's been this kind of feed in and how the study's conducted. And um, do you feel like you have a similar situation where the, there's an interest and, and, and I guess I'm really interested in how you feel the work that you're going to be doing as well and have been doing is going to then end up with practical applications? Mm -hmm. I think probably first and foremost, probably is to inform um, management of different wildlife species. And maybe that's more relevant to um, state agencies, potentially, especially if we're talking about like game species like deer. <laughs> um, and if we're thinking about how wildfires may be becoming more frequent and prevalent on our landscape, um, deciding how we manage our species so that they can continue to be a resource for everyone <laughs> um, is a really important point, I think. Um, and whether or not they are, like understanding whether or not they're vulnerable to, you know, frequent mega fires, I think is an, an important point as well. Um, and also there is a lot of, at least from the interactions I've had, there's a lot of curiosity from um, people who own ranches in, you know, Mendocino County and Sonoma County, Napa County about um, what wildlife are doing after the fires on their property and how can they best, you know, one, um, protect their properties from fire, but then also make sure that their um, land is still conducive and usable by those wildlife species. Um, and I'm hoping that my research can, at least in some ways, inform um, how management, you know, before fire might be able to, you know, kind of soften the blow of some of these fires, but then also when, um, when post-management is needed, like when, you know, someone else, something else needs to be done to ensure that some of these systems uh, recover like they need to. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm often kind of challenged by what seems to be a, a quite a delicate balance between the fact that California is a fire adapted ecosystem and many of our species benefit from a certain level of fire and humans have been using fire as a tool here for thousands of years in order to uh, create, uh, you know, to, to steward an ecosystem that's, that's healthy and, um, and productive as well. Um, but that tips with the situation that we have now into fires that are not not always beneficial to wildlife. Would, would you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I think that's kind of conundrum is a little bit what drew me to some of this research just because I think it's so interesting. It's almost like, well, maybe not exactly like having too much of a good thing, but like it's just very interesting that so many of these systems have had fire in their evolutionary history. And um, the way that global change is happening in these ecosystems is challenging that very, you know, ecological and evolutionary interaction between species and that kind of disturbance. Um, yeah, if we think, I mean, it varies depending on which California ecosystem you're thinking about, but I can talk briefly about like oak woodlands in the past, historically, normally have like low severity fires um, that were used to like maintain oaks and remove oak litter from, from the ground. But um, if we're thinking about recent mega fires, um, some of these fires are big enough to kill whole oak trees, which are supposed to live for hundreds of years. Um, and we really, yeah, uh, we really don't know what the long-term effects of some of these events are going to be because um, 
because of just the huge life history that some of these oak species have and some of the rippling effects that their loss may have on the rest of the ecosystem over long periods of time. Um, yeah, so yeah, that's one example. <laughs> yeah, whenever I speak to either of you, I always feel like, gosh, we could do, you know, series of the Ecology Hour on each of your topics. They're so huge. And I appreciate that what I'm asking you to do tonight is very much a kind of very shortened version. Um, and maybe just to round things off, I'm going to continue in that vein, because I think probably one of the things that happens frequently, it's, it's very clear that you are not locked away in some academic ivory tower, not communicating with the public, right? Very clear that you're having conversations with people who are challenged by having a wildfire on their own land or um, growing and growing cannabis and trying to figure out what can be having the least impact on the wildlife. Um, so I'm sure you often get questions which are seemingly simple questions, but probably have incredibly difficult answers. Like Phoebe, you've already mentioned one, and I'm just going to pitch it to you now. Is this bad for the animals in my area? This this grow here is this bad for the animals in my area? What what what, what do you respond when people come to you with questions like that? Because <laughs> it is complicated, right? Um, and it's and there's also the whole system beyond animals themselves as well. Um, because sometimes I, I'm not entirely sure how to describe the answer on this one because on some level, yes, like any, any type of development that you have, it's really hard to not have an impact. And the question for me really becomes what is, what is the type of impact and how do you minimize it? Um, rather than just the blanket, like does it have an impact? Because the answer is almost always yes. Yeah. Um, and, and really to me, it's more of, um, how do we figure out a way to coexist? Mm -hmm. But I think one thing I've noticed is when people are asking me that question is that's usually also coming from a place of wanting to share a story or an experience that they have had with cannabis. Um, and so usually when people ask me that I first you know, ask them about what their experiences have been and what um, what types of interactions have they observed or, or have shaped their thoughts about about cannabis farming and what's happening on the landscapes around them. Um, because I also want to be really clear that a lot of my research focuses focuses in on one particular type um, or a couple different types of farming, but does not necessarily encompass all of the environmental impacts of cannabis as an entire industry. Um, but I would say, in general, I think some of the different, I think in terms of sort of um, mechanisms, different types of practices that people use in the cultivation of cannabis, um, and the ways in which those might potentially impact wildlife. And it's different depending on the style of cultivation, the size of cultivation, the location of cultivation. And, and there are different sort of methods that you would use for each of those to try to mitigate or reduce impact. So for instance, in the, a lot of the places, a lot of the areas where I did observational work on cannabis farms, um, was in Southern Oregon, actually. And many of those farms um, were located in sort of a, a forest, forested ecosystem on land that hadn't really had much previous development on it. And so in those cases, you're looking at sort of small scale clearing and road building. Um, depending on the farmer, you might be looking at something like um, spraying of plants, pesticide use. Um, not everybody does that. Um, and certainly if you're part of the regulated system, there are a lot of restrictions on what sort of things you can spray on plants. Um, but what I noticed, especially from site visits, was that what I think might be one of the keys to understanding, at least in rural areas, so especially in parts like in northern Mendocino, um, where you've got um, 
more sort of production in areas with less other forms of development. I suspect that a, a major piece of the impact on wildlife is really more about just the presence of people in a place that there hasn't been a lot of human activity. Um, and so that's, that's part of the impact of the noise and the light is just in a place that hasn't, maybe hasn't experienced much of that. I think that's actually um, likely to be a large part of the mechanism. So I, I, I don't think there's anything inherent in cannabis itself as a plant that means that it has to be bad for animals. Um, I wanna be <laughs> really clear on that, um, but there are a lot of different practices associated with where and how it's grown that can lead to some of those negative outcomes. Um, sort of a winding explanation. I guess maybe the other aspect I would add on that one is just that I, so often I get people who are asking about cannabis in a way of sort of, you know, they ask about the environmental impact and it's sort of tied with this concept of like, can't we just make it go away? Yeah. Oh. Um, like, can't we like, you know, this is bad and we should stop it. It's and a loaded it, question, right? It, yeah. it is a loaded question. And it's one of those ones where you're like, but do you want to stop it? Like, do you actually, if you're thinking about that, like, um, I mean, especially in Southern Oregon, and I don't know to the same extent in Mendocino, it's like, what do you do if you pull the rug out on the cannabis industry? Like, what do we have left? Timber? Like, yeah, that also has an impact. <laughs> the time is now 7.30 p.m. And you are listening to The Ecology Hour on KZYX. No, I, I, I think that um, I think what we've just been through is, is just proved, right, that one of the it's, it's really challenging because often the questions that we, I, um, if I speak for community members, come to you with asks you to simplify things down. And in fact, they're really hard questions because of that. Um, Kendall, if I was going to ask you the similar kind of question, I'd probably be asking something similar around fire and maybe what I just asked you about well hang on a minute isn't isn't wildfire good for our ecosystem and and you know it's 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 not a simple answer and that's why you're doing the work that you're doing and the studies that you're working on um so I guess I, I just want to wind up and, and say a huge thank you for the work that you're doing and also a, a great thank you for the fact that I know both of you are very dedicated to the, the utilization of um, what you what you discover um, and seeing how that's going to change um, California for the better. Um, so I want to say I appreciate all the work you do here. Um, is there anything else you'd want to add at the end of tonight's show? Sure. Um, I, I just want to say thank you to Hopland Research and Extension Center. Um, I, it's been a really um, supportive and wonderful place to do research. And I think particularly on the, the topic of, of connecting research to communities, I, it, what I found from all the people working here and helping with the research is that they all really care about that piece. Um, and so even, you know, the casual conversations I have about my research with people who work here, um, it is really guided towards that concept of, of how does this relate to the community and how can we use this research? Yeah. Yeah, Do, I, yeah go I, ahead, Kendall. <laughs> I was just going to completely echo that and say that the, the staff are just like stars and just makes it a great place to do our research and also Hopland just has such a rich history in research and that's even outside of our lab so um, there's a lot of yeah knowledge and yeah to pull from <laughs> well I'm, I'm i'm thrilled that that this site is able to offer that um for for everybody and for the future as well um all right i'm gonna let you get back to your evenings now and again thank you so much for spending time on the ecology hour with me this evening you are listening to the ecology hour on kzyx we're now going to check back in with kendall calhoun phd candidate at UC Berkeley's Brashares Lab to hear an update from his project. And in the second half of tonight's show, Kendall was joined by his assistants, Aaliyah and Grace. 
I started by asking them to explain a little more about Kendall's project and what they'd been doing in their recent visit. Can I just start by asking each of you to introduce yourselves? And Kendall, can we start with you? Yeah, I'm Kendall Calhoun. I'm a fifth year graduate student at UC Berkeley. Fantastic. Hi, I'm Grace. I'm a fourth year undergraduate student at UC Berkeley. I'm Aaliyah, uh, and I'm also a fourth year undergraduate student at UC Berkeley. Excellent. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us on the Ecology Hour today. Um, now, Kendall, I've been lucky enough to have you on the show a few times before, um, but we'd love a, a little bit of an update, and perhaps you can kick us off for listeners who are hearing from you for the first time, a little bit about the research that you have been conducting at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre. Yeah, um, so I've been working at Hopland for the past four years now, I think. Time now. <laughs> yeah, um, and my research really focuses on understanding how different wildlife species respond to um, California wildfires, and specifically the really severe extreme ones that we've we witnessed in the last kind of decade. Um, and Hopland's a really special case because... <laughs> Our lab actually had a pre-existing um, study using trail cameras across the site. Um, and kind of in the middle of that study, we had a huge wildfire that burned half of that um, half of the site. Mm -hmm. So now we have this like really interesting experiment to look at how um, wildlife are responding in the burned areas of Poplin versus the unburned and how that changes over time potentially. Um, and I'm excited to say we're like very close to Yay! finishing like this first kind of chapter slash paper for the Hopland study. Um, and it really kind of takes advantage of looking at the two years of pre-fire data that we had collected before the fire happened mm -hmm. and two years of post-fire data. And I think we see some interesting things. Um, so I would love to draw you on that, but I want to start by saying, well done, congratulations. So this is you closing in on the end of your PhD as well, right? Yeah, I'm like knocking on the <laughs> door. I have like one year left, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're really excited about that, that process for you and how much you've stuck with this project too. Um, so I, maybe I could just ask for a little bit more detail before we maybe mm -hmm. come to a little bit of some of the things that you feel like you have been seeing coming out from that data. So I remember the, the work you were doing with um, camera traps, trail cameras here. Approximately how many trail cameras are you using for this study? Yeah, we have 36 cameras across the entire Hopland site and 25 of those burned during that fire um, and 11 are kind of outside the fire perimeter. So mm -hmm. in that way we have like kind of a good control yeah. for that fire kind of effect yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that we can see the differences yeah. um, over time. And how frequently do you have to come out and um, check on those and collect the pictures from them? And... Yeah, I normally come out every three months to check the batteries to make sure the camera's still alive, make sure that it's not blocked by grass, yeah, <laughs> collect that data, and then kind of data cleaning as... Grace and Aaliyah know is so ongoing. Grace and Aaliyah, this is where I really need you to Because, you know, what Kendall's got so far is, I'm guessing, thousands of pictures, oh, yeah. right? I mean, even with the best set-up trail camera, you're going to have some shots that perhaps don't have anything in them or um, got triggered for some other reason. Mm -hmm. And then you come in and your job is to review those pictures. And what, so what does that process look like? <laughs> so <laughs> basically we just are given different drives that we have, like flash drives that we plug into our computer, one for each, we get like a series of different cameras based on the data that Kendall collects or that we have helped him to collect in the past, and we just sort the data. So if we see a bobcat, we put it in the bobcat folder. If we see a bird, we put it in the bird folder. If we see a ghost picture, which there are a lot of... <laughs> ghosts up here? <laughs> what does that mean? Tell me. Um, a ghost picture is basically when the camera takes a photo, even though there's no animal in the shot. So it could just be the wind has blown a tree branch and the camera has caught that motion. And sometimes there are many, 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 many of those. <laughs> Many. <laughs> but, yeah, so we just kind of sort through all of them and yeah. hand it back to Kendall. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm interested, um, for me, on the few occasions when I use um, trail cameras with educational groups here, it's always, uh, I mean, often we end up with thousands of pictures of nothing but a leaf, but it's always exciting, just not knowing what the next picture is going to hold. 
Do you still have that sense of excitement or at this stage are you so bored of doing it that you just, I don't know, Grace, what do you think? Is that still... No, yeah, it's definitely still exciting to see like bobcats or lions out here. Um, Also, sometimes you catch deer doing funny things. (laughs) One of my favorite pictures was I caught an owl and a deer kind of just hanging out together at a water trough. And so it's just still cool to see like the different interactions happening. Um, still exciting, especially after seeing thousands of pic- like ghost pictures to finally get an animal on the camera again. <laughs> so that's I like this idea of your favorite picture. I love this one of the, the owl and the deer. Have you got a favorite picture, Elia? Mm. I have this. Like, I had this really good one where a deer was itching itself and its hind leg was like just up in the right spot. <laughs> it was just like just a really funny picture. <laughs> And I also live with roommates, so sometimes when I'm sorting them and I see a really cute picture of like a baby doe or something like that, I'll be like, come over, quick, 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 and then we'll crowd around the computer and we'll just flip through them really fast like a flip book. Oh, that's lovely. I think maybe we should add some on our Instagram of some of the uh, best pictures. Kendall, do you have a favorite picture? Um, There's a really cool picture from here of a buck and a coyote, like kind of squaring up. Like, it's like an action shot of, like, um, six photos of them, like, kind of sizing each other up. Oh, my goodness. What, um, do you, could you tell what happened in the end of that story, or? No. They, no. Yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, I'm guessing sure. the coyote tried to attack, but I doubt, I don't know. The buck was huge, so <laughs> I don't know if it was able to actually take it. But it's really interesting that what you get in these pictures is not just these kind of individual flashes of one animal, but it's this amazing behavior on stuff mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about, and I remember in having a conversation with you in the past, is you were also collecting acoustic data. Is yes. that right? So yes. Could, and did that continue? Is that Yes. So, so we just set out acoustic monitors yesterday so this is our last spring season of collecting acoustic data as well um and we are still kind of in the midst of sorting out that data because that's a whole other thing right yes so we've been using an auto classifier to help us with that um, classification of those data um and hopefully trying to pull together like a summary of all of the bird species that have been detected at each site. And I think we have about 50 (laughs) that we've been able to validate by ear. Gosh. So that's... Gosh, so your bird (laughs) identification by sound skills have gone up dramatically. (laughs) (laughs) Because I remember in the early stages you're saying, I'm just starting to figure this out. And now you can handle 50 different... Kind of. It's very, I feel like it's very seasonal. Like when I come back to do birding, I like to have to relearn a little bit again, but it's always a little easier than the first time I started birding. So yes. Um, And I think that will be coming right after I finish this trail camera um, chapter. Oh, that's exciting. And am I right in thinking you were also looking at bats or did that? Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah, a little bit of everything. Wow. And that, that's another chunk of data that, again, do you use software to figure out what's going on there and who, yeah. who's around? Mm-hmm. So the bats are a little bit different in that um, it's recording the sound and we use a software called Sonobat to look visually at the bat um, echolocation call. And then you still have to go through and visually validate that the sonogram that you see is consistent with the um, species that it marked it as. So it's still like, it's a helpful tool, but there's still a little bit of work to go into it to make sure that we're identifying all the species correctly. But really cool. um, We've seen that Townsend's Bigard bat is detected here at Hopland, which is, I think it's pretty rare or like a rarer species of bat. Oh my so, goodness, that's fascinating. Yeah. So do you, do you guys get involved, Grace and Aaliyah, do you get involved in looking at that as well and trying to look at... Not yet. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like a whole other um, thing. I could probably just about figure out what a bobcat looks like. <laughs> looking at sound waves and figuring out who they belong to. Um, so I, now you have this uh, incredible body of data with the pictures of wildlife, sounds of birds and bats... I'm not missing anything, right? This is the different things that you've got in there. Yeah, we do a little bit of plant stuff, but that's a totally separate project. So we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 
I was just thinking, was there some small mammal work as well that you did, or was that a separate project too? That was like a um, tr- like a trial kind of project, right. so it's not like yeah. part of the main thing now. But yeah. we did try. So well, to be clear, you obviously have a lot here, and you've got it in the area that burned in 2018, and you've got it in areas that have not burned um, from wildfire in, in the period of the study. What kinds of things, and I know you're just still in the process of putting this paper together, but um, what kind of things were rising to the top that you noticed? Yeah, I can say, I can mostly speak to the camera data, (laughs) because I haven't, like, delved too deep into the acoustic stuff completely yet. Mm -hmm. But what we see, or what we think we're seeing, is that a lot of the larger carnivores um, within the burnt perimeter are using using those areas a lot less often. So... Mountain lions, I think, the year or two years after the fire were, like, very rare. Like, we were getting very few detections of them. Mm. Same thing with bears, but I think most more recently they've returned. Mm. And I think this may have, like, indirect, indirect ecological impacts for other species. Because we saw at the same time when lions and bears were becoming a little more rare Mm. following the fire... Coyotes, pigs, <laughs> and some of the other muso predators are a lot more active in those areas, potentially being released yeah. from like the the fear of having these apex predators around. Yeah. Um, they feel a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I'm putting all <laughs> kinds of ideas that aren't scientifically appropriate, but they seem like they're a bit more confident because there mm-hmm. isn't this fear of these other top predators in yeah. the area. And potentially being able to take advantage of the cleared brush to find prey mm. easier too. So what about the prey species? How's their response been for them? Um, it's a mix. So I think it depends on their kind of dominant habitat type. So we see that gray squirrels and raccoons have not done very well following the fire. Gosh. Um, we don't detect as many images of them in the burned areas following. And I think that's because they're very dependent on high canopy cover areas. So after the fire, everything's way more open and a lot of those tree resources aren't as readily available for those species. But a lot of the other prey species like ground squirrel, jackrabbits, they're doing great. Like (laughs) um, they're like, haven't been affected seemingly by, by that fire. So brush is coming back. Mm-hmm. so that they've got still spaces to hide and perhaps a little bit less of the predator pressure, maybe? Or... Right, and that, that's probably dependent on time, too. So yeah. as the chaparral grows back, um, it'll probably be better for cover for lions and for prey species, so different species can use those areas again. And then as oaks regenerate and are making acorns, hopefully again, yeah. um, a lot of the gray squirrels and other species that use those will be able to rehabilitate. Mm-hmm those areas again so what about the area that was unburned that's right next door to the burned area Mm -hmm. do you see now that these have have those species that you've just been talking about the squirrels and the raccoons have they shifted over do you find more detections on cameras right next door or is it yeah maybe they need a larger area anyway we tried to look at that and we couldn't find a signal of that but that is like what we would definitely expect in that species that are at least able to move or make the move from the burnt to unburned areas would. Mm. Um, And it's probably dependent on how much you can move. So maybe bigger species, like maybe a deer can make that decision, Mm -hmm. but a gray squirrel probably is stuck where, where it is because it's, it's home range probably isn't large enough to leave the the unburned area unless it's like right on the edge. And then I'm guessing that there would be some, slight increased pressure on the resources in those unburned areas mm-hmm. right suddenly you're there's other species that have been able to move that potentially are putting a bit more pressure on those yeah definitely and i i should mention that <laughs> one of one of the really cool results i think that we've seen is that within the burn area if there are any patches of relatively low severity um patches within that there is an increase in the number of species that use that patch. So it's almost like a magnet effect of like everyone's trying to use the (laughs) remaining island of canopy. Which which fits in also to the kind of maybe... 
traditional cultural practices mm. around fire definitely would have been smaller potentially smaller areas and mm. much more of a mosaic right definitely. Of areas of burning at different levels and and then that might make a nice kind of mixture of habitats right yeah i think that is for sure what this is kind of showing and also i think it just Blaze sort of why the advantages of using prescribed burning and like other thinning or other kinds of practices help mitigate the effects of mega fire because mm -hmm. it helps like when fires do happen they're actually patchy instead of everything burning into like a grassland yeah. um, and that's what these species need like diversity of habitats and diversity of like different life stages of these different vegetation types yeah. so definitely like all of the indigenous practices that have been used before are still very relevant and needed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you've been doing this work on this site, and when you talk about the amount of data you've got from here, I mean, it just sounds humongous to me. Um, I don't know how you managed to keep it all together, but there's other sites that you've been working on as well. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so <laughs> most of my time has been in Hopland, <laughs> but <Good>. I yeah, <laughs> I am trying to do a little bit of a meta-analysis of fires specifically in Northern California, and mm -hmm. really trying to get at like how oak woodland mammal communities respond to extreme, extreme fire and how mm -hmm. fire severity affects them. So I have um, started another camera grid in the Hastings Natural History Reserve. Wow. which is in Carmel Valley, yeah. which has been super cool. They have like spotted skunks and oh, cool. um, just a ton of mountain lions, which is really? crazy. Yeah. So, so just many. to give us a sense, because I think often like we talk about mountain lions and I think there's, there's a lot of, well, they're just so mysterious. Aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so how frequently might you get a detection of mountain lion there compared to here now after the, in, in the burned areas? in the burned area um, and i'm thinking maybe that the range of the mountain lines that we had been seeing on this site was predominantly in the upper right. area that was burned anyway right right so yeah mm -hmm. i'd say maybe two detect two to four detections total in the burned area per year right. okay. <laughs> um, okay that's pretty normal and then in my other site in Hastings, we see mountain lions, like, I don't know, like, Justin, I've only done camera trapping for a year, and I think we might have, like, 15 to wow. 20 detections across, oh goodness, like, eight different cameras, so. Oh, good grief. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a little safer for when I'm running here in the morning. <laughs> but I don't know if I fancy running at Hastings. But... Yeah. <laughs> how, how amazing, though, to see that difference between these two sites. And it must be fun now to have that other site to be yeah. looking at the two things together. It makes it really interesting to think about comparisons and why we're seeing some of those differences. And then also the fires are a little different, too. So we can kind of look at how differences in fire characteristics might affect the responses of um, some of these species. So lots of layers. Yeah, um, it is, isn't it? Because I think yeah. when we start talking about this, we say, well, the burned area and the unburned area, but to think about the burned area in so much more detail mm -hmm. of how was it burned in different areas, the intensity, the severity of right. that, um, what species were there in the community beforehand. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to think about that level of complexity and mm -hmm. we appreciate you doing all this work on it. Yeah, um, it's exciting for me to... <laughs> yeah, good. Um, I'd love to just flip over to Grace and Aaliyah for a few minutes and hear. So you've been coming out. I mean, I'm guessing that when you first got involved with this project, you were looking at the photographs, but without having been to the site. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to come out to the site. How did that feel when you first were able to come out? And... Yeah. Um, I started working on this project last year, I think. Um, and so I was working on it for about a semester before I got to come out for the first time. It was at the beginning of summer, <laughs> extremely hot, but just getting to kind of understand the area that we were working with outside of photographs was really amazing. And um, as I've kind of changed interests in school to more of a data science focus, like Kendall has been able to give me some data to do data visualizations. And so I've been creating like maps and things and looking at a map versus actually being <laughs> here is really crazy because I can say, 
oh, well, we see this type of bird in this area, but then actually being in that area is really cool because, you know, it kind of just puts an image behind what you're doing and it makes it a lot more real. Um, sitting behind a computer and coding or just looking at images all day, it's fun, you know, you get to see yeah. cool detections and things, but actually being out here, actually hiking the sites and yeah. also just hanging out with Kendall and Olivia <laughs> is so much fun. <laughs> yeah, a really fun bit. So what's interesting to me, Grace, is I, so I live on site mm-hmm. and I get to be out and hiking and, you know, interacting with the sites a lot, but I think you actually have in your brain now a whole other understanding of the site that I don't have because I only interact with it really yeah. as somebody who's out just kind of enjoying it. But I haven't got those layers of data um, that you have in your head, which I find really exciting so that when yeah. you come here, you're thinking, oh, this is the area where we've seen all the detections of the whatever it is. Yeah. Um, how head, fascinating. Yeah. In my head before I came, it was just like little dots on a map. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, it's great. I, I, I'd love to go out hiking with you to see the, how your dots on the map translate on the landscape here. Um, what about you, Aaliyah? Was it When was your first time coming out here? And So my first time coming out was um, last fall. Um, I think it was in uh, November. And yeah, I, kind of similar to Grace, had just been looking at camera photos. Um, I grew up in Sonoma, which is kind of an area that's pretty similar to this one, just in terms of like ecosystem, oak woodland. So I have a really deep love for this type of area. But coming out here was so amazing. It's such a beautiful sight. And I remember just like when we were staying overnight here too, I like went out and looked at the stars and it was just so, so lovely coming from Berkeley, which is just like this city where you're like going to class, coming back from class, sitting in your room on your computer, like trying like all these moving pieces all the time, but coming out here and just driving around in an ATV with these two and like visiting the sites. (laughs) And, like, walking the same paths that, like, maybe a deer had made mm-hmm. and stuff. That was really, yeah. it was really yeah. a nice break. It's <laughs> funny because when I only see you all here when you're out doing field work, in my head, I think you're all just out doing field work all the time. <laughs> you these lives like that. I wish. I wish. <laughs> that's, my, that's the dream. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's true to say that your field work is also, at times, hot, strenuous, tick ridden yeah, yeah. <laughs> how's that been how's the kind of tougher side of field work yeah. been it was actually super nice yesterday like yeah. that was we had some some of the bad sites to walk to that are like ha- like kind of harder hikes but it was like super nice out and these two made it fun and yeah. i don't know i had a really good time <laughs> being That's, out yesterday. sounds like you have a good team um, <laughs> yeah. i'm interested i was talking um so we're just i feel like we're at kind of peak wildflower time mm-hmm. were you seeing mm-hmm. a lot of wildflowers out yeah. yesterday so many it was gorgeous <laughs> any ones that you can identify and share with us that's what we were part of our work yesterday was identifying plant species inside the exclosures so what did we see lupin we saw blue dicks we saw lilies um we Poppies. saw irises yeah, yeah. I meant, I meant irises, not lilies. Yeah, that's so pretty. That Those purples, that haze oh, it's of gorgeous. That's just oh. across the lens right now. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I wonder, did you guys see what well, my favorite one is? The little yellow Diogenes lantern. Did you see any of those? Oh, I don't mm-hmm. think so. I did see little, little yellow ones. I don't think they were. Yeah. All right. Well, I also I'll be saw excited. these like minuscule, like little salmon pink ones that were really, oh, really cute. Oh, um, well, I only know. Oh yeah, scarlet, scarlet pimpernel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The yeah. color of those is yeah. just they pop. Yeah, like <laughs> you don't see it anywhere else. Yeah. Um, well, I know that you guys have to get back to Berkeley. Um, I'm always sad when that has to happen. Um, <laughs> but I love that you've been out here, and I really appreciate you sharing your findings. Um, just to wrap up, I'm going to throw in a very personal observation that I made here the other day, and I'm wondering if it's come across on any of your acoustic recordings. Mm. Um, so I saw for the, my very first time a, um, a, I think it's in the nightjar family, a common pawwaw. Oh. And I yeah. think probably more commonly people might hear those. So this is a bird which is primarily nocturnal. Mm-hmm. Um, that if you haven't seen one, Google it. They are so weird, <laughs> <Yeah>. looking. <laughs> and they're just fabulous looking too. Um, 
And I was just wondering, is that something you've ever heard on your acoustic monitors at all? So our the my monitors are only programmed to record during the mornings. Ah. And those, yeah, the porwells are definitely like nighttime birds. And I think they like, I don't know if you saw it on a road, but I they like to like lay on, on the road. That's, it was exactly yeah. what I saw. <laughs> I saw it right sitting in the road on a dirt track and mm -hmm. it took me a few minutes because I it was dark at the time I had my head torch on and I see the eyes reflecting <laughs> at me which always makes me think oh what's there <laughs> and then I turned on my full beam and there's this tiny weird yeah. looking bird well not tiny they're medium sized mm -hmm. weird looking bird um, and as I say I'd encourage anybody to <laughs> take a quick look online because they are just so cool looking mm -hmm. um, well thank you again for spending some time with us on the yeah. Ecology Hour and we are always Whenever you come by, I'm going to try and check in and just see where things are at. And the next time I speak with you, I'm guessing there may be a paper out there. So Hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. And consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.